Hello, this is Amy Flieger, and welcome to the Expert Eye Podcast. When I was trying to figure out where to start with this podcast, I felt a little overwhelmed. There are a lot of stories to tell, and some that have already been told that deserve to be told again. But then I started thinking about all the interesting photographs I've handled during my career, and how much I've learned just by looking at prints and writing about their histories. Just being able to have access to amazing prints to study every day at work is one of the reasons why I love my job, the stories behind the prints, as much as I love looking at the prints themselves. I want to know what led up to the click of the shutter. How do ideas and lives intersect? I want to know about the quirky bits, the kinks in the great plan, the humor inherent in being human, and the beauty and creativity. To me, where photography intertwines with the human experience is what is most interesting. I guess what I'm saying is, let's talk about photography, but let's find unlikely connections. Let's learn about prints and printmaking, and let's figure out what got a photographer from point A to point B. So for the first episode of The Expert Eye, I thought we could start with early photography but focus on what happens when someone gets a little too ambitious. What happens when you are so, so excited about a new invention, but the technology hasn't been quite ironed out yet? What happens when the result you get isn't what you planned on at all, but it's still actually kind of great? In the late 1800s, Victorian photographer Julia Margaret Cameron was prolifically taking portraits of her family and friends. She dressed them in exotic costumes, and she posed them in her garden, and they acted out stories in front of the lens. Sometimes she photographed her subjects sitting peacefully in the sun, frozen like marble statues. And sometimes, while their bodies are still, their skin appears almost kinetic with energy due to the long exposure time. Cameron has thankfully been given the attention she deserves by numerous publications and exhibitions, and while you might be familiar with some of her more well-known images, you might not know about her portraits of astronomer Sir John Herschel, who she'd been friends with for around 30 years. When Cameron photographed him, Herschel was in his 70s, and he had this wild white hair, wily expressive eyebrows that pop out in all directions from his forehead, a deeply wrinkled face, and these incredibly piercing eyes. It's a masterpiece of naturalistic portraiture, and considering how long Herschel had to sit for the portrait and how finicky photographic plates were at the time, we have to give Cameron some props. Cameron and Herschel shared a love of photography. In fact, Herschel actually coined the term photography in 1839. He invented the cyanotype. A cyanotype is one of the most basic forms of photography. It's just a piece of sensitized paper that you expose by setting it out in the sun with objects on top. Because Herschel was an astronomer, he would have been very interested in what photography could do for astronomy. And it's not surprising that once photography was invented, people immediately started looking up and wondering if they could photograph the celestial world. But what we were asking of photography was kind of a lot. Remember, the dry plate process hadn't been perfected until around 1880, and using wet plate processes was seriously difficult. Wet plate was just that, a plate of wet chemicals that had to be handled super carefully. There were a lot of steps to making an image, 
First, cutting a plate from glass or metal, wiping an egg white along the edges, coating the plate with a gooey medium called collodion, dunking the plate in silver nitrate, and then loading it into a camera while it's dripping everywhere, exposing the plate and then developing it, which is an entirely separate set of complex and finicky tasks. There's a lot that can go wrong. On top of this, the exposure time isn't seconds, it's minutes. At night, it's hours. Trying to take a picture of something 25 light years away seems like a big ask when you can barely take a picture of a parked carriage. There were early pictures of the moon, for sure, which, just due to its size, was a bit easier to capture. But the first photograph of a star was taken in 1850. The exposure time was 20 minutes. What is notable about this photograph is that the star, Vega, it looks like the platonic ideal of a star. The plate itself is dingy and coal-like and tarnished with damaged edges, but the star is at the exact center and it looks like it should be at the top of a Christmas tree with a strong glowing center and a distinct vertical and horizontal axis. A few years later, across the ocean, well, I don't know where to start because there's no smooth way to segue from star photography to the Swedish theater scene of the late 19th century. Maybe I really wanted to do this story because I'm fascinated by August Strindberg, the bad boy of Swedish theater, who is so much of a downer that I'm not sure how people manage to be around him at all. If you look at a portrait of Strindberg, you can almost see the inescapable weight of existential crisis bolted to the back of his neck. His presence in photographs is intense, as if he's just trying to burrow into your soul with these piercing eyes, and his mouth is pursed into an ever-present frown. But despite all the angst, he was killing it in every sense by the end of the 1880s. And if you don't know anything about August Strindberg, it's impossible for me to fully impress the innovation he had on theater. He was writing these withering satires on contemporary Swedish society and was gaining a lot of attention for it. In fact, his 1884 book, Getting Married, earned him a trial for blasphemy. And although he was acquitted, at this point he, well, he lost it. He said at that time, and I quote, everything is shit. He started having delusions of being persecuted, and this attitude extended to his wife, Siri, and women in general. I mean, I have a bit of a problem with my man Strindberg at this point, because he became a bit of a woman hater, but let's press on for the sake of the story and agree that he made some ill-advised statements about ladies in the throes of his paranoia. What's crazy is that he became even more pessimistic than he was before, which seems impossible, and he was approaching a complete mental breakdown. At this point, Strindberg went a little unhinged, but frankly, in a way that made him quirky, but not totally incapacitated. His wife, Siri, had it with him, and she left, taking their four children with her. At this point, he became obsessed with power struggles between the sexes. He made up with Siri. He broke up with Siri again. He got into naturalism. He gave up on naturalism. He got writer's block. He was busted financially and couldn't keep up with the support for his wife and kids. He maintained a very committed relationship with absinthe. He got into the occult, alchemy, religion, and mysticism. He painted moody landscapes. He was depressed, and he suffered paranoid delusions. 
Several Strindberg experts believed that he intentionally turned himself into his own guinea pig by doing psychological and drug-induced self-experimentation. But remarkably, he was still actively writing. This period is what Strindberg called his inferno crisis, which sounds about right. I'm not sure how he convinced a woman to marry him in the middle of all this, but it happened. She was Austrian, and in the summer of 1893, they were staying in a village called Dornach in Austria. While at first it seemed like he was pretty content, he was actually entirely financially reliant on his wife's family, and it doesn't sound like they liked him very much, which frankly isn't super surprising. His life there was feeling a bit like a prison. He was doing very little writing, and was mostly painting and getting good and obsessed with the occult and drinking a lot. Remarkably, and importantly, he was also making photographs. But it seems like he really only wanted to make them without the aid of a lens. That means his only option was to make photograms, like the ones that Sir John Herschel had pioneered. So why would he want to make pictures without a lens? He had this idea that lensless photographs could capture information that couldn't be detected by the human eye. What does that even mean? Considering his obsession with the occult at the time, maybe he was hoping to capture something even more than a landscape or a portrait? Like, what exactly? Austrian village ghosts? Who knows? But that was his motive, and so he went for lensless photography. So basically, you'd take a piece of sensitized metal or paper, lay it down, put some objects on it, expose it to light, develop it, and there you go. You have a photograph. Strindberg made photographs of ice crystals and snow with this method that are really successful and beautiful. And now that he had some success under his belt, he got really confident and decided to photograph the sky. I'm not sure why anyone knows exactly why. Maybe it was the absinthe. But one night, he just laid these plates face up in a tray filled with developing liquid outside, pointed at the sky. What Strindberg didn't really get was that you couldn't just set a sensitized plate outside in the night and hope that it would take a mirror image of whatever it was pointed at. It doesn't really work that way for a number of reasons, although I really appreciate the initiative. It was cold, so I imagine Strindberg went inside for a few hours to sit by the fire to think about existence and death and how he just managed to get a woman to marry him even though he was a total downer. And eventually, he threw the lap blanket off and went outside to get his exposures. So he goes outside and he finds that dark black and gray plates miraculously have little faint dots on them, which Strindberg perceives to be stars in the sky, which he's actually managed to capture on the photographic plate. He's just freaking out, beyond excited, and he proudly calls these images his celestographs. The only thing is, they weren't pictures of stars. They were utter failures in a technical sense. The stars on those pictures, we don't really know what they are, but it's likely it's just dust, maybe dew. But what we do know is that Strindberg's celestographs are the result of a total failure to capture the night sky. Although his plates have long since disappeared, the worn prints that exist are quite beautiful. They are mottled, swirling browns in a sea of dark green, gold, purple, and rust. Billowing Mars-red clouds and milky blue nebula-like swirls appear, 
with piercing white stars cutting through the inky black ground. The billowing, almost psychedelic gas formations are chemical and ink stains that are continuing to oxidize. Blue nebula are formed from the discolored oil from a hundred-year-old fingerprint. By all accounts, Strindberg did believe, at least for a while, that he had been successful. But maybe when he didn't receive any feedback from the president of the Astronomical Society of France, he realized that he may not have had what he believed. He certainly didn't succeed in photographing the night sky, but he did know a thing or two about innovation and experimentation. And while you can argue that Strindberg's night sky photographs are an utter failure, another way to look at it is that he arguably created the first abstract photographs. Just like painting is brush, ink, and canvas, photography is just ultimately light chemicals on a surface. He just stripped everything down to the most basic building blocks. I wonder if experiments like this helped Strindberg hit the proverbial reset button. Maybe just letting nature do its thing allowed him to get a little bit loose and improvise in the middle of a period of personal crisis. Maybe it helped him express himself in a new way, aside from the written word. Maybe it gave him an outlet for some of the restless energy. It's hard not to imagine how life would have been different for Strindberg if he had lived today. Mental illness was obviously not something that people totally understood at the time. Even after things got better for Strindberg and he climbed out of his inferno crisis shortly after, he still had some more major mental breakdowns. Perhaps if he'd lived today, he would have had access to the tools that would help him manage the chemical ups and downs in his brain. It's terrible to think about how many people were struggling with mental illness and how many of these people are the names we know today as the giants of classical music, theater, literature, politics, and science. Strindberg managed to create remarkable things despite his affliction, which is truly amazing. So there you have it. I managed to get you from Sir John Herschel to August Strindberg. Herschel created a method of taking photographs that didn't require a fancy camera or lens, and Strindberg, in another country, picked up on the method and tried to capture the stars, but instead accidentally created stunning abstractions. Shot for the stars, captured fingerprints. You know, Strindberg and Herschel probably would have hated each other, but I like to think at least that Herschel would have been happy that one of his inventions led to something beautiful and unexpected. One final note about their commonalities. Both men had great hair. Go to our blog at theexperteye.org to see photographs of August Strindberg and Sir John Herschel, as well as the first photograph of a star and examples of Strindberg's celestographs. This episode was written by me, Amy Flieger, and produced by Yvonne Soro here in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. I am indebted to David Campany for his research on August Strindberg, as well as to Mary Sandbach for her 1962 introduction to Strindberg's Inferno.